Heavenly Father, we do thank You and praise You and glorify You. Lord, when we think about the life of Daniel and the ministry of Daniel, Lord, when we think about what the book of Daniel reveals, that You are a sovereign God, that You have planned things from the beginning. And Lord, when we consider the disciplined prayer life of Daniel and how he studied the Word of God and believed it, how he understood spiritual warfare and how he sought to glorify you and how he realized that he had a work to do. Lord, we pray that our hearts would now be drawn towards you. That, Lord, as we consider the reality that you've revealed the future and you are in that future, Lord, we pray that we could trust you here and now for our life, for our marriages, for our jobs. Lord, I know that there are many, many people who are suffering from all kinds of circumstances. But Lord, I pray now that we can draw close to you, knowing that you will draw close to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Daniel chapter 12 Beginning in verse 5, where we left off. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, that is, angelic beings, one on the riverbank and the other on, the, on that riverbank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white, and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the, and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. But you, go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. Like the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel is sometimes difficult to understand, difficult to comprehend. There's probably been more than one time as you've read in the book of Daniel or you hear me reading, you go, what in the world does that mean? 
even Daniel was left wondering the meaning of some of the words that had been given to him by the angel of the Lord. And when you are left not understanding, sometimes you run the risk of misunderstanding. But one of the things that we've got to come to grips with, there are things that the Bible reveals... And there are things that the Bible conceals. But God created us in such a way that we love puzzles, don't we? We love mysteries. We desperately want to understand how the universe ticks, how the world works, what's going on inside of the human heart. And then we get frustrated. Because we can't even understand what's going on inside of our own heart. And then we remember what the scriptures say, that the human heart is desperately wicked and who can know it. And that the only way that we can really understand is as we submit ourselves in humility to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's a principle of inquiry. When you don't understand what's happening. Whether you're you're talking about science, whether you're talking about math, whether you're talking about geology, whether you're talking about theology, the way that you move is from what you know to what you don't know. Twice, Daniel confesses ignorance of the things said. He's done so in verse 4, but also, again, in verse 5, we see... In verse 4, Daniel is told to shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. But when Daniel confesses ignorance about certain things that are being said, it should be for us a kind of encouragement. Now think about it. No one or at least few people in all of the world were wiser than Daniel. And so when Daniel says, I don't know. You should with great humility also be able to say there are certain things that I don't know. And so, in some ways, we're at an advantage. Even though I don't mean to speak for you. I'll just speak for myself. I know that there's absolutely no way that I'm as wise as Daniel. But we have an advantage. We have the perspective of history. We also have the perspective of having the Gospels and the prophecies of Jesus and the book of Revelation. But even with all of those resources, there are still some mysteries that remain. And like I said, even if you come to the end of the ministry of Jesus... And remember what it says in verse 4. Daniel was told to shut up the words, seal the book, until the time of the end. And remember the last time we were together, I said that the end times began with the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. With Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and the book of Revelation. If Matthew and the book of Revelation offers to us keys we can unlock certain mysteries. But make no mistake about it. There are still mysteries that remain. On Sunday, 
I was talking about God's ability to know the future. And I said something that I deeply regret. I said, God knows that the Pittsburgh Steelers are going to win the Super Bowl. The fact that he knows that the Pittsburgh Steelers are going to win the Super Bowl doesn't mean that he has made them win the Super Bowl. In the fourth quarter, I was thinking, I'm going to have to eat my words. But you understand my point. My point is, even though we might give a best guess, and that guess comes true, it remains simply a guess. Now, people, we, we understood something. We saw the signs preceding the tribulation period in, in, in verse 4. <clears throat> There would be an increase in in speed. There would be an increase in knowledge. And people living in the time of the Great Tribulation will break open their Bibles. They'll break open their computers, their portable devices. And they're going to once again open the book of Daniel. And remember the last time we were together, I said one of the claims of the book of Daniel itself is that it would survive up until the time of the end. And in a time of unprecedented sorrow and bloodshed and catastrophe, people will search the scriptures having never studied the scriptures. They're going to look for clues that will help explain the unfolding events that are taking place right before their eyes. And so in this final portion, Daniel's final word, we see a prophetic sequence unfold. The prophetic suspense and the prophetic sequel. And there are three sets of days which are given to this unprecedented time of anguish and sorrow and trouble. Remember, that's already been referred to as the time of Jacob's sorrow. There's 1,260 days given in verse 7. There's 1,290 days given in verse 11. There's 1,335 days that are mentioned in verse 12. And I'm going to tell you right now, I have no idea what those days mean. Although I have speculations. Because I have the benefit of having read at least 26 commentaries on the book of Daniel. So I at least know 26 different opinions about what those things might mean. But in the end, no one really knows. Although there are clues that are given to us that might stand up under prophetic scrutiny. Look again in verse 5. It says, Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others. He's talking about angelic beings. Remember that in the first six chapters of, of Daniel, history has unfolded. Between chapter 7 and chapter 12, the vision has unfolded. And now Daniel sees two other angelic messengers. In Daniel's first vision, Daniel was standing on the banks of the Tigris River. Is it possible that Daniel sees angels and then the Lord Jesus Christ hovering above the angels? I think that it's very, very possible. And as he sees these angelic beings, these creatures, if you will, Daniel is asking the question, how long will this be? And the angels ask the Lord, how long will this be going on? In other words, we've already talked about the time of 
tribulation, the time of sorrow in verses 1 through 4. We've seen that there's going to be an antichrist. We've seen that there's going to be a beast. We've seen that the world is going to unfold in a catastrophic circumstance. And so logically, Daniel asks the question, how long is this going to be going on? And in verse 6 it says, And one said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? That's what everybody wants to know, huh? Everybody wants to know, When will the final curtain come down? When will be the time, if you're not watching the History Channel, where you go, you know, and it's not just the change from analog to digital, where, you know, you've got this transition taking place, where you go, I want to know, when is the last of the last of the last moments? And look at verse 7. Then I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand, and he held up his left hand to heaven, listen carefully, and swore by him who lives forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these Things shall be finished. Now, you've got to understand the context. The context is how long will the Jewish people experience enormous tribulation? How long will these people linger, if you will, under the shadow of extinction? How long will the Antichrist And how long will the false prophet be able to persecute the children of God? In this particular case, the the children of Jacob. How long will it last? And the man in the linen ephod who swears, he picks up his left hand and his right hand and swears by him who lives forever. It says it will be for a time, a year, times, two years, half a time three and a half years. Now, remember, the same answer is given in Daniel chapter 7 at the beginning of the vision that there's going to be a three and a half year period of intense judgment. In Daniel chapter 9, we learned about the 70 weeks of Daniel. We learned about the time that was set aside for, that God had set aside for the Jewish people, for the Messiah to come. We also saw that there was a period of time of 62 weeks, and then we saw that there was a period where those weeks were extended um, for seven more weeks, leaving a total of 69, you know, satisfying 69 total weeks. With one period, one seven-year period left unattended, if you will. It will be for a time. Times. And half a time. It will be at the close of 1,260 days of hell on earth. And that's what's spoken of in the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, um, we, we studied through the book of Revelation a few years back. 
But if you have an opportunity, you can pick it up because there in the book of, of Revelation, it talks about the opening of the seven seals, the seven trumpet judgments, the seven bowl judgments, the doom of Babylon, the battle of Armageddon, the millennium that follows, the final judgment. And during that time, during that time of pressure, the resources and the strength of the Jewish people will be shattered, it says in the text. Smashed. As a matter of fact, a careful reading both of Ezekiel and Zechariah and the book of Revelation tells us that two-thirds of the Jewish population on the planet Earth will die. And I don't say that hopefully. I don't say that expectantly. I don't say that in an anti-Semitic sort of way. I say that because the Bible makes it abundantly clear that a process of judgment and purification is going to take place. And after the judgment and the purification takes place, the remaining people will embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Messiah. And there's the prophetic suspense. Look at verse 8. It says, Although I heard, I did not understand. The reason why that becomes such an important verse, although I heard, I did not understand, there's going to be times of frustration for me and for you where you hear the words that I speak as I read from the Bible and you have no idea of what I just said. And when Daniel says, although I heard, I did not understand, I suspect that he he certainly understood that there's a sovereign God. He certainly understood that there's going to be a time of judgment and purification. But he did not understand the meaning of the time of human history that comes to a dramatic close. Then he said, my Lord, what shall the end of these things or what shall be the end of these things? Daniel is asking the question that everybody wants to know. And that everyone in almost every generation has tried to speculate concerning. In 1000 A.D., there was a group of, of apocalyptic people who believed that the end was, was fast approaching. When the Black Plague um, made its way through Europe and two-thirds of the population was completely destroyed, people thought that we were right on the precipice of the end. In 1844, there was a group of people called the Millerites who prophesied, if you will, that the Lord Jesus would come at a certain point, at a certain time in 1844. And when Jesus didn't show up, it became known as the Great Disappointment. And by the way, the Seventh-day Adventist Church emerged out of that failed prophecy, if you will. Question, will Jesus return? The answer is yes. Has all of the predictions, the Jehovah's Witnesses predicted he would come in 1916, did he? 1917, did he? Then they prophesied again, 1972, failure. And then Edgar Wisenot wrote a book 
that swept across America called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Would Come in 1988. And he didn't. And the very next year, he wrote another book, 89 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come in 89. And in 1990, he gave up because he was completely and thoroughly discredited. And in verse 9, look at the answer that's given to Daniel. And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. When Daniel asks the question, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? The Lord answers the question much the same way that Jesus answers the question to his own disciples. It's none of your business. Remember in Matthew 24 and 25, what will be the sign of your coming and, and that we're at the end? Not telling you. Matthew 24, 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. So when people tell me, I know when Jesus is coming back, I say, okay, Abraham didn't know, Isaac didn't know, Jacob didn't know, Joseph didn't know. Daniel didn't know, Peter didn't know, James didn't know, John didn't know, Paul didn't know, but Stephen from Highlands Ranch knows? See, now we laugh because of the absurdity of it. But of that day and hour, no one knows. So the moment a person says to you that they do know, guess what? They're lying. So we go from the prophetic suspense. When's it going to be? Not telling. To verse 10, look what it says. Many shall be purified, made white, and refined. But the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Here's what the Lord is doing. The Lord God reveals to Daniel certain things that will take place during the time of the Great Tribulation. A remnant of Israel will be made clean. A remnant of Israel will be purified and refined. Now remember, let's do the math here just for a moment. Purity is something that takes place on the inside. Made white is something that takes place on the outside. And refined is a purging process that I think makes a reference to character. And so during this time of processing, there is a transformation that is taking place on the inside. There is a transformation that is taking place on the outside and a growth of character. And it becomes the description of what it means to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ. God's working on you. He's changing you. Moment by moment. In very specific ways. And as He changes you on the outside, excuse me, as He changes you on the inside, as He purifies you, and as, he, as you begin to walk differently on the outside, there's a transformation, a purging that begins to take place. As a matter of fact, 
In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 6, the writer of Hebrews says something very interesting. He says, since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, he's talking about the entry into the rest, the rest of God. The writer of Hebrews is talking about the children of Israel entering into the rest of God, and some entered, but most didn't. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 6, it says, There it, re it remains that some must enter it. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 10, it says, Many shall be purified. But you know what it doesn't say? All shall be purified. All shall be made white. All shall be refined. No, but the wicked shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Here's what I think it's saying. God's plans will be fulfilled. We've already established that, haven't we? In spite of opposition by men, in spite of opposition by demons, God's plans will be fulfilled. If Daniel chapter 12 verse 10 means anything, it means that up until the time of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the wicked shall do wickedly. Wickedness will continue. Wickedness will not only continue, but it will get worse. Sin and error will increase. And as sin and error increases, the mouth of hell will open wide. You know, it's hard for us to understand, but at the turn of the 19th century and the 20th century, there was a time of great optimism. The great optimism was human beings are getting better and better. We're getting better and stronger. You know, sort of like the Saturday Night Live sitcom where, you know, I'm getting better and better and people like me. The, the idea being that human beings are good and, and they're going to get better and better and we're going to have this utopia is going to be ushered in as people live in peace on the planet Earth. But the Bible says there will be no peace until the Prince of Peace comes. Wickedness will get worse. So verse 10 seems to be to, to describe the normal state of affairs until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, it's repeated in Matthew. Remember, it talks about that there will be marriage and the giving of marriage. It's going to be like it was during the times of Noah, that there's going to be circumstances that are going to take place so that it looks like business as usual. And in verse 11, it says, and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Oh, a clue. A clue. Do you guys like murder mysteries and whodunit shows? Do you ever watch, like, you know, crime scene investigation or whatever on TV and, and you're watching it and, and, and all of a sudden you know you come up, up, up upon the dead body and the whole show is revolving around who done it. Now remember, this is what's frustrating. The frustrating thing is Daniel said, when is all this going to happen? The Lord said, it's none of your business. And then he throws you a bone. And you go, ooh. 
What am I supposed to do with this? We've seen 1,260 days. I think it's the closing half of the Great Tribulation. There's 1,290 days or 30 days before the middle of the Great Tribulation period. Again, I'm not saying this with certainty. There is a great deal of speculation in what I'm about to say. But I think that when it says, and from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, that there shall be 1,290 days, I believe that this is a reference to a temple. When the Bible talks about a daily sacrifice, it's talking about the daily sacrifice that's taking place in the temple of God. When Daniel is writing these words, where is the temple? Who knows? There is no temple. It's been destroyed by the Babylonian invaders. Nebuchadnezzar has destroyed the temple. He's raised it to the ground. There are no daily sacrifices. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, in Daniel's life, some 85 years earlier, the temple was destroyed and the sacrifice was taken away. In history, the Babylonians' captivity would come to an end. The children of Israel would return during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. They would rebuild the temple. Remember, the temple would be added onto by Herod the Great. And then in between 66 and 70 AD, the Romans would come and they would destroy the temple once again and the sacrifices would cease. In between those two times, after the rebuilding of the temple by Ezra and Nehemiah and before the completion of the temple, the temple would be defiled like it says in Daniel chapter 11 by Antiochus Epiphanes. So when in the world does this happen? This is why you hear so many people talk about the fact that a temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. But right now, in Jerusalem, there is a mosque, a Muslim mosque in the place where the Jewish temple used to stand. But here, according to Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, there's going to be another temple. But what do you do? You've got a Muslim mosque. Do the Jews want to rebuild their temple? What do you suppose the answer is? Anyone who's ever been to Jerusalem and Israel knows that there is a group of of Jewish people who are jonesing in the worst way to rebuild their temple. Now, again, in 70 AD, when the temple was completely destroyed, the hope of a new temple being rebuilt seemed unbelievable. And then the most amazing thing happened on May 14, 1948. Israel becomes a nation. And a Jewish state is established. So from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. I think that that means that the worst half of the tribulation begins. 
and 1,335 days or 75 days after the destruction of the Antichrist, the false prophet and the blessings of Messiah's kingdom is going to be ushered in. After the crushing of the Antichrist, after the crushing of the false prophet, Daniel envisions a time perhaps of cleaning up before the Messiah's reign. But again, the sacrifice takes place in a Jewish temple. And by the way, this expression appears twice in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, and here, but it's also mentioned by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. And if you have a Bible, you might turn to Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, and reacquaint yourself with the words of Jesus. Jesus said, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Question. Did the abomination of desolation take place during the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D.? Apparently not, and let me tell you why. Because the Roman general, Titus, didn't go into the temple and proclaim himself Lord and God and demand worship. As a matter of fact, the most unusual thing happened, according to Josephus the historian, when they were laying siege to the city of Jerusalem, it was Titus's intent to retain the magnificent structure. You see, Romans and Greeks, they didn't really destroy temples. These were, these were expensive building projects. Now, again, I, I hate to use this as an illustration, but when the Twin Towers were destroyed on September 11th, Who knows the value of those Twin Towers? If you were like a real estate agent and I said, Hey, I've got two Twin Towers in New York. I'd like to sell them. What would be their approximate value? Anybody have any idea? Would you say it's more than a billion? Would you say it's more than five billion? Would you say it's more than ten billion for the two? I'm going to suggest to you that the two towers conservatively had to have been worth between fifteen and twenty billion dollars. Now, when you have something that's worth fifteen and twenty billion dollars, how smart is it to just sort of destroy it? Not smart at all, is it? And even in the ancient world, these people knew it's not you know, imagine you have this bonfire and you just burn twenty billion dollars worth of stuff. It just doesn't happen that way. But the strangest thing happened. When the Romans were attacking the temple, a Roman soldier threw a lit torch into the temple precinct. And the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies caught on fire. And when it caught on fire, the raging fire was so intense that it melted the gold in the temple. And the gold in the temple began to run through the rocks and the seams in the temple. And the Roman soldiers began to dismantle the stones one by one in order to recover it. And so the Roman emperor never went in and never claimed that he was God. And so when Jesus says, therefore when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, and then let those who are in Judea 
flee to the mountains, one of two things has to be true, that it is a true statement concerning a past event that's passed to us, but was then future to Jesus. Or it's something that's even further future. And I'm here to tell you that the circumstances between 69 and 70 A.D. don't fit the prophetic circumstances that are outlined in Matthew chapter 24 or in Daniel chapter 11 and 12. Does the Bible teach that a temple must be rebuilt literally in Jerusalem for this abomination to take place? I'm going to suggest to you that the answer is yes. Which has caused Bible scholars to speculate for many years now. Will the Muslim people voluntarily allow the mosque that's on the Temple Mount to go away? I think the answer is no. So how will that temple be built? Don't know. Stay tuned. Remember, the Antichrist places an image in the temple, demands worship. It's called an abomination or a desecration. The Jews will refuse to go into the temple because it will be so corrupted. This will happen in the middle of the tribulation and two numbers are given by Daniel. 1,290 and 1,335 days. Now, ironically... When the desecration takes place under the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, Jewish people have recorded events during the Maccabean Revolt from the time of the desecration of the, of the temple, depending on which calendar you use, that adds up to 1,290 days and 1,335 days. But in verse 12, look what it says. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. What in the world does that mean? The great tribulation will include a final week. Remember the grouping of the seven, and that is, is broken down into two units of 1,290 days and 1,290 days. If during the first half of the seventh week there are global catastrophes, wars, famines, earthquakes, pestilences, and the second half of the seven years or, or, or the last half of the three and a half years, witnesses the rise of the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the, the time of a global governance, and then a catastrophe that results in this final war. It could mean, and I'm not saying that this is exactly what it means, but it could mean, blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. It's a, it's a statement that just basically says, blessed is the person who survives the tribulation period and is alive to see the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It could be something that simple. Or it could be something else. But look what it says in verse 13. But you, go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of days. Daniel's given a word of encouragement and responsibility. He says, go your way till the end. You know what I think that this means? 
I think what it means is take care of your responsibilities. Now, remember, Daniel doesn't have a 401k. He doesn't have a 403b. He doesn't have Social Security. He has nothing in his retirement account. He's clearly in his 90s. Go your way till the end. Till the end of time? Till the end of Daniel's ministry? I'm going to suggest to you that there are many people who get so caught up in the minutiae and the details of prophecy that they forget why this particular book was written. They develop this bunker mentality and hunker down in rough times and they get into the minutia of the prophecy and they go, you know, the Antichrist will have a mole over his right eye. And you go, come on. How could you possibly know something like that? Well, remember, remember, the word is go your way till the end. And I'm going to suggest to you that what that really means is the Lord's telling Daniel, get busy. Serve the Lord. Do the work of the kingdom. Fulfill the plan of God. Serve the Lord with joy. Here's what I don't think it means. I don't think it means buy gold, buy guns, buy groceries, buy property in Idaho and Montana, and then wait out the global catastrophe. See, no, no, we're, we're laughing, and, and we understand something, that in difficult times, survival goes to the top of the list. But would it, would it embarrass you to, to learn? That there's something more important than my survival or your survival, and that is that the plan of God must be fulfilled. And so you know what Daniel was told to do? Be about your father's business. You remember what we're told in the New Testament? To occupy. Jesus said, occupy till I come. Do the numbers mean something? Yes, they do. They absolutely do. Do I know what the numbers mean with certainty? I don't. Someone might say, I do, I know. Good for you. Is now a good time to prepare for the end by isolating yourself? No. The vast majority of people on the planet Earth are headed for an eternity apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. If ever there was a time for you to fulfill your ministry, it is now. If ever there was a time for you to pray the plan of God, it's now. I know certain things. And once again, Daniel is given a hint. He's given a glimpse. And the glimpse includes two things. Resurrection and reward. Daniel is told, you shall rest and will arise. Man, this old man deserves rest. He's worked under Nebuchadnezzar. He's worked under Belteshazzar. He's worked 
under the Persian kings. He's been thrown into a den of lions. If anyone ever deserved retirement, it's this guy. And guess what? You shall rest, it says. Can you imagine? He's going to a place where he's not persecuted. Where he's not vexed by personal sin. And he will awake in the likeness of his Savior. By the way, there's also a word about reward. Daniel spent the vast majority of his life in captivity. In a foreign place. Far from home. But now the Lord promises that Daniel will one day come back to life and participate in the Lord's kingdom forever. Don't you understand how glorious that is? Because that's the same promise that Jesus gives to you when He says, I'm the resurrection and the life, and he that believes in Me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live, and whosoever lives and believes in Me will never die. No wonder He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. So when Jesus says, they're going to kill me and I'm going to come back to life and the very fact that they're going to kill me and that I'm going to come back to life, I'm going to make a promise to you. I'm going to bring you back to life. Isn't that amazing? Daniel's portion is safe and secure and set aside eternally by God. Even Jesus said to his own disciples, he says, I'm going to go. But if I go, I'm going to prepare a place for you to receive you to myself so that where I am, you'll be also. You know, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, it says, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? The reason why that's such an important thing, Peter points out, since all these things will be dissolved, since the world is going to come to an abrupt and a dramatic end, what manner of people ought you to be? Well, we ought to be people who are buying guns, gold, and groceries, and we should be sending money to Montana so we can purchase an end-time bunker. So we can wait it out. And then wave at Jesus. Well, he's not going to come back to Idaho or Montana. If we're going to wait it out, we might as well wait it out in Jerusalem. Sinclair Ferguson writes, The biblical response to the promises of God's coming kingdom is always, quote, Live for that kingdom now. Recognize his reign now. Be obedient now. Fulfill your responsibilities now. And then one day you'll hear your master say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's what it says in Matthew 25, 21. So if this chapter teaches us anything at all, it teaches us that God's people will be different then. And they should be different now. On the outside. On the inside. And so, Daniel, he believed in the sovereign God. 
he believed in a sovereign God. Do you? Do you believe in a God who rules all things with wisdom and power? The Babylonians changed his address, his name, his education, and they tried to change his standards, but they couldn't change his theology. God was sovereign in every aspect of his life and his service. He depended totally on the God of heaven, who is the sovereign over all things. He believed in a sovereign God. Daniel had a disciplined prayer life. Daniel carried the Jewish custom of praying three times a day with him to Babylon. Daniel and his friends prayed when they needed to know the answer to the king's dream. And the Lord gave him the answer. He believed in a sovereign God. He had a disciplined prayer life. He studied the word of God, but he wasn't content to simply study it. You know what else he did? He believed it. That may seem like an obvious thing to say. And I'm embarrassed and ashamed that I have to constantly repeat it. It's not good enough to study the Bible. You have to believe what it says. And then be willing to do what it says. Daniel had a, an understanding of spiritual warfare. Remember, Daniel 10 is the key for prayer warriors. People who wrestle in prayer and seek under God to tear down strongholds that block God's truth. He believed in a sovereign God. He had a disciplined prayer life. He studied the Word of God and he believed it. He had an understanding of spiritual warfare. Remember what we've already learned. That once he knew the plan of God, he began to pray the plan of God. And as he prayed the plan of God, he experienced opposition. And so will you. He sought only to glorify God. It says there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. That's what it says in Daniel chapter 2, verse 28. Daniel told the powerful monarch, the man who was the most powerful human being on the planet Earth, he said to him, you give God the glory. <laughs> he realized that he had a work to do. Like Joseph in Egypt, Daniel didn't complain about his lot in life, but he tried with God's help to make the best use of the circumstances that he found himself in. Daniel believed in a sovereign God. Daniel had a disciplined prayer life. Daniel studied the Word of God and believed it. Daniel had an understanding of spiritual warfare. Daniel sought only to glorify God. Daniel understood that he had a work to do. Daniel knew how to conduct himself. He was tactful and considerate. Daniel exerted considerable influence during the reign of four kings. But you know what he never did? You know what we never learn in the book of Daniel? We never see Daniel, not even one time, accusing anyone or threatening anyone. Isn't that interesting? He had insight into human history. And in the end, he lived up to his name. Do you remember what his name means? The Lord is my judge. Do you remember what my name means? The cattle are dead. (laughs) 
Warren Wearsby ends his commentaries with, Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you'd prepare our hearts even now. Lord, there is amazing material contained in the book of Daniel. Visions. Hints, clues concerning what's going to happen. But Lord, in the end, we know that you're sovereign. Lord, in the end, we know that it's not good enough to just know more things, Lord. We want to be changed on the inside. Purified in our character. Lord, we want to study the word of God. And we want to believe it. Lord, we want to have an understanding of spiritual warfare, knowing that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Lord, I pray for that person who has lost his or her way, that you would once again remind them of the friendship and the fellowship that you've called them to and the task at hand. And Lord, I pray that you would draw men and women to yourself. And Lord, I pray for that person who for whatever reason has forgotten that there is a God who knows the beginning from the end. And Lord, as they whisper in their own heart, what about me? What about my life? What about my end? Lord, I pray that you would begin to reveal to them that it was always your plan and it was always your purpose to love them, to forgive them in Jesus. And to set them on a course, a course that included being used by you to glorify yourself. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would prepare our hearts right now as we get ready to receive communion. Lord, I pray for that person who isn't sure whether or not they should have communion. Lord, I pray that you would communicate to the Christian that you love them and that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus that if we examine our hearts that even if our hearts condemn us that God's grace and God's mercy provides joy and peace forgiveness and hope and for the unbeliever Lord I pray that they would cry out to you and they would say a simple prayer Heavenly Father I know that I'm a sinner and that I need to experience your grace and mercy and forgiveness. I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that I could never live and that he died on the cross for my sins and he rose from the dead. And because he's alive, he can change me and forgive me and use me. And I want to walk with him. I want to know him and love him and be used by him. In Jesus' name.